Afrika Zora Afrika Amka na Unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 49-meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Amanda Machaka, Tabiso Luhoko and Figilele Mwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour... The unilateral decision by South Sudanese President Salva Kiir to increase the number of states from 10 to 28 has triggered varying reactions. And social media experts say a former Guazul-Natal estate agent Penny Sparrow, who labeled black beachgoers as monkeys on Facebook, has done irreparable damage to her professional reputation and her career prospects. In economics, South African power utility ESCOM says it is not a secret that they have signed a deal with Zimbabwe. And in sports news, the Proteas claw their way back into the game against England. But first up, the news with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. Zimbabwe's maternal and neonatal mortality rate has increased since the beginning of the country's health workers' strike on January 1st. According to online media, the workers are demanding payment of their December salaries. A joint statement by health workers' unions, the Zimbabwe Hospitals Doctors' Association and the Zimbabwe Nurses' Association says at least 90% of nurses and 80% of doctors had heeded the call by their unions to press on with job action. Meanwhile, a report by the state-owned Herald newspaper on Friday claimed that state workers had agreed with government to postpone the strike after meeting with the Reserve Bank Governor John Mangudia, who pledged an immediate payment of government workers' salaries and bonuses. The health workers have, however, vowed to intensify the strike as they would not be working for free. A Malawian politician has demanded that homosexuals be killed after the country's Justice Minister Samuel Tembenu put a temporary prohibition on anti-homosexual laws. Ken Msonda, who is the spokesperson for the former ruling People's Party, also called on government to clarify its stance on homosexuality. According to a local newspaper report, Msonda described homosexuals as being worse than dogs and that gays and lesbians were sons and daughters of the devil. He wrote on his Facebook page, that arresting homosexuals won't address the problem because sooner or later they are being released on bail. He suggested that the best way to deal with this problem was to kill them. Msonda is not the first African politician to have openly discriminated against homosexuals. The South African Human Rights Commission is encouraging those who feel aggrieved by the alleged racist comments attributed to some people on social media to lodge a formal complaint with them. The inflammatory comments were made by suspended opposition Democratic Alliance member Penny Sparrow and Standard Bank economist Chris Hart. The commission's Diegetzeng Diale says such comments open wounds of millions who were formerly oppressed by the apartheid government. And we are saying really after 22 years of democracy, we have been going through all this again. We have since launched an investigation on the matter, and we really are encouraging people uh, who feel aggrieved to lodge formal complaints with us. 
Saudi Arabia has denied that its worsening dispute with Iran will affect regional peace efforts. This after the kingdom's execution of prominent Shiite cleric Nimra al-Nimra at the weekend. Protesters in Iran and Iraq have staged protests to denounce the execution. Al-Nimra was detained in 2012 after criticizing the Saudi monarchy and calling for elections. 47 others were executed alongside the cleric for alleged terrorism offenses. Meanwhile, Saudi Arabia has broken off diplomatic relations with Iran and is cutting trade and air links in a row over the execution by the Saudis of al-Nimra. And finally, the White House has given details of President Barack Obama's plans to tighten gun controls in the country. This follows years of opposition by the U.S. Congress. The new measures will be reduced by executive order. All sellers who operate online or at gun shows will now be forced to conduct background checks on potential buyers. Channel Africa News. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza, Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Amanda. It is 8.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The unilateral decision by South Sudanese President Salva Kiir to increase the number of states from 10 to 28 has triggered varying reactions from rebel leader Riek Machar and the country's constitutional and legal experts. President Kiara's decision comes at a time when South Sudan is preparing to set up a government of national unity at the beginning of February. James Shimangula prepared the following report. South Sudan President Salva Kiara's unilateral creation of 28 new states to replace the current 10 has been described by the country's rebel leader Riek Machar as well as constitutional and legal experts as illegal and unconstitutional. The creation of the new states was swiftly followed by the appointment of 28 governors loyal to President Kiel. Of the 28 states, Jonglei retains its state while South Sudan capital Juba becomes a new state. This is how rebel leader Riek Machar described the creation of the new states. What he has done is creating another conflict by creating new borders. And people will resist it. They will resist it because they will say, where did you get all these borders? Cutting a chunk of land within South Sudan. He didn't support it. And now it's a tragedy. We are trying to transform the country to become a federal state. Machar asserted that the creation of the new states violates vital parts of the peace agreement he signed with the President Kiri in August this year. But South Sudan Information Minister Michael Weth McQuay maintains that the creation of the new states will not affect the power sharing position stipulated in the peace agreement that sets the pace for the setting up of a government of national unity. I don't see anywhere whereby the agreement has been violated. There is no provision in the agreement which ties down the hands of the President not to continue to render services and serve the interests of people. The president is acting in accordance with the provisions of the law. The president has decided to take it at this particular moment in good faith, in response to the will of the people. 
adding his voice to Information Minister McQuay's remarks, Lawrence Koribany, who represents President Kiir on constitutional issues, had this to say regarding any violation of the peace agreement. We have not yet violated our own constitution. We made some assessments that in the absolute, absolute call for federal system, David Deng, an independent expert on constitutional issues based in Juba, specifically reflected on the peace agreement and argued that the creation of the new states should have been approved by the country's National Assembly. The peace agreement itself is founded on the principle of 10 states. So to change it makes a lot of people question whether or not the government is committed to a peace agreement. Any change to state boundaries or to state names requires the Council of States, which is one house of the South Sudan Parliament, and such decisions cannot be made through executive order. Such executive orders cannot be used to change state boundaries. President Kiir's decree has automatically split Central, Eastern, and Western Equatorial states into eight states, Northern and Western Bahar el-Ghazal, Warapo and Lex states, have been divided into 10 states while three states making the so-called Greater Upper Nile, Jonglei, Unity and Upper Nile, Riek Machar's political and military strongholds have been carved into 10 new states. Alfred Lokuji, another independent expert on constitutional issues in South Sudan, expounded on what President Kiir's unilateral decision to create the new states implies. By doing that, you clearly demonstrate that there is nothing holy anymore about governance and about the Constitution. It sets back the agreement and it sets back uh, the debate that uh, has been going on, especially among those who believe in an orderly, politically uh, logical and systematic way of bringing about change. Let us get this, this agreement. Let us honor it. Let us do what it takes to make it successful, to remove violence away from the lives of the people of South Sudan. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. The past year has been a roller coaster ride for West Africa, with Ebola coming and going. But now, after nearly two years of battling the deadly virus, the region finally seems to be Ebola-free. None of the three countries most affected, Guinea, Liberia and Sierra Leone, has had an active case since mid-November. Also, the World Health Organization recently declared the end of the Ebola virus transmission in Guinea. Elizabeth Ledicha reports. While Guinea may enter 2016 Ebola-free, the impact of the outbreak is being felt by many. Ebola has traveled around the world since it was first reported in March 2014, infecting over 28,000 people and killing more than 11,000. Hundreds of thousands more have lost their jobs or loved ones or had their lives in some way turned upside down. Economic losses have totaled an estimated $1.6 billion in 2015 alone, according to the World Bank. But Tim Ewen, communication specialist at the United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF, says Guinea's success is something to celebrate. It's really a great accomplishment. Guinea is where Ebola started, and it's a wonderful success to see that the virus is now being contained in that country. The country is declared Ebola-free after 42 days have passed, so that's twice the normal 21-day incubation 
rate. And I think if you were going to attribute the success of ending Ebola in Guinea to any one thing, it would be community involvement. Highlighting the plight of children in West Africa, Erwin says the Ebola epidemic has taken a heartbreaking toll on children in the region. It really has had a tremendous impact. I mean, across all three countries, that being Guinea, Liberia and Sierra Leone, more than a quarter of the infections and more than a quarter of the deaths were children. And in Guinea, for instance, 2,500 people died of uh, Ebola, and out of that, more than 500 of them were children. So just in terms of the mortality rate around Ebola, children suffered tremendously. But then there are other ways in which children have suffered as well. Uh, Many children lost parents, maybe both parents, or perhaps their primary caregivers. So there were many children who had their lives really turned upside down by this disease. However, despite everything, he says there's a key lesson to learn from this experience. I think the key lesson is involve communities early on. Work with them, work with community leaders, religious leaders, village elders. Involve them in the process. Don't try and come in with a top-down approach. Work with them, work with their belief systems. Get them on board. Empower them to come up with a solution. You don't want to impose solutions and you don't want to enforce ways of doing things which may go against you know, traditions and beliefs, although ultimately what we found in Guinea and some of the other countries is that some of the traditional practices did have to change during the Ebola outbreak, but that was accomplished by working with community leaders, the village elders and the religious leaders. Guinea had the fewest Ebola cases of the three countries, but its bigger size Extensive remote areas, stigma and distrust of health workers allowed the outbreak to persist longer. Benoit Carpenter, spokesperson for the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, explains the role his organization played in keeping Ebola in its tracks in Guinea. The Red Cross of Guinea has been involved since March 2014. They've deployed about 2,500 volunteers throughout the the entire crisis to help the the population. One of their main tasks was on safe and dignified burials, which is... uh, one of the key components of the battle against Ebola, and but they've also worked against other elements of the response, such as social mobilization, contact tracing, to be able to identify all those who were in touch or had been in touch with people that were infected, psychosocial support, and also some case management. He has cautioned that vigilance is required in the coming months to avoid the return of the disease. We need to stay vigilant and we need to use the momentum that has been created with Ebola to be able to reinforce the, the surveillance system around Ebola, but also also other diseases such as malaria or waterborne diseases or measles or this kind. So we need to have clear um, setup to be able to have this vigilance and monitoring in place, surveillance in place, so that we can diagnose any new case if there was one quickly enough so it doesn't spread around. While experts have warned that there will likely be a re-emergence of Ebola at some point, governments, health workers, communities and aid agencies all say they are now better prepared to stop any new flare-ups. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Elizabeth Lidira in Johannesburg. I am an African. I owe my being to the hills and the valleys, the mountains and the glades, the rivers, the deserts, the trees, the flowers, the seas and the ever-changing seasons that define the face of our native land. My body has frozen in our frosts and in our latter-day snows. 
It has thawed in the warmth of our sunshine and melted in the heat of the midday sun. The crack and the rumble of the summer thunders, flashed by startling lightning, have been a cause both of trembling and of hope. The fragrances of nature have been as pleasant to us as the sight of the wild blooms of the citizens of the felt. The dramatic shapes of the dragon's back, the soil-colored waters of the Likwa, Ikreli, Lotugel, and the sands of the Khalahad have all been panels of the set on the natural stage on which we act out the foolish deeds of the theater of the day. At times, and in fear, I have wondered whether I should concede equal citizenship of our country to the leopard and the lion, the elephant and the springbok, the hyena, the black mamba, and the pestilential mosquito. A human presence among all of these, a feature on the face of our native land just defined, I know that none dare challenge me when I say I am an African. This is Channel Africa, informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The resumption of government business on Monday, the 4th of January, following a Christmas break, was marred by violent attacks on teachers in the capital of Zimbabwe in Harare. Members of the Rural Teachers Union of Zimbabwe took to the streets in protest of unpaid bonuses, delayed wage payments, as well as arrests and assault of their members by police over the Christmas holiday. As a result, scores of teachers affiliated to the RTUZ were arrested and detained by Harare police on Monday. This is the second time in a week that rural-based teachers have clashed with the authorities over unpaid bonuses and delayed payment of salaries in Zimbabwe. More from our correspondent, Simon Muchema. Zimbabwe Human Rights Association, Zimbrights, an umbrella body of all human rights groups in Zimbabwe, has expressed concern over the continued unwarranted arrest of members of the Rural Teachers Union of Zimbabwe over unpaid bonuses. According to Zim Rights, a handful of teachers were on Monday arrested in the Zimbabwean capital, Arare, as they demanded explanations over the non-payment of bonuses. The teachers also demonstrated against poor working conditions, especially for the teachers working in the rural areas of the country. Zim Rights maintains that the arbitrary arrest of the peaceful protesters by police is a violation of the new constitution which guarantees the right to freely demonstrate and petition. The demonstration in Harare Monday came as a result of delayed payment of salaries, unexplained deductions relegating the rural teachers to poverty. Meanwhile, during the demonstrations in Harare, RTUZ made a wide call for the payment of other civil servants who include nurses and doctors who are yet to receive their December salaries. According to eyewitnesses near the parliament building in Arare, RTUZ President Obet Masaraure and RTUZ Secretary General Robson Chere and another activist were picked up by Zimbabwean police as they tried to petition the government through parliament. Zimrights Director O.K. Machisa condemned the arrest Monday. It, it, it is something which is very unfortunate and uh, we do not uh, think that uh, 
it is uh, very human to go to such an extent where rural teachers are arrested when they are trying to register their displeasure on uh, a move that the government has failed. It is provided for in the constitution that demonstrations that are peaceful are covered and are allowed in our country. And uh, I'm not very sure where these uh, police uh, people are getting uh, the powers from because the constitution is very clear that uh, we have a right to demonstrate. Machisa is worried Zimbabwean police are using force against poor citizens complaining of failure by the government to fulfill its mandate, that of paying salaries and bonuses on time. And it is very sad that we have reached a stage where the people of Zimbabwe are in pain, are in agony, left, right, center. The teachers uh, were paid, and unfortunately I'm told that uh, a certain figure was deducted without them being alerted that uh, a certain figure is going to be deducted from their salary. That alone is uh, quite unfortunate, and you remember that every year teachers or civil servants get bonus. And uh, if you want to compare the salaries that they get uh, in, in, in the whole region, you see that uh, the teachers in Zimbabwe are getting almost nothing. And uh, it is very painful when rural actually want to register that they are displeasure because these are the people that really suffer in the rural. They, they sacrifice quite a lot to go and teach our children in the rural areas where there is no electricity, where there are no buses, where there is no access maybe to health facilities, where there is no clean water. They are exposed to all lots of inhuman um, uh, treatment. And therefore we think it is very unfortunate and it is very sad that uh, this group uh, of children have been arrested when they are trying democratically exercise their rights. On the eve of the new year, police arrested three members of the RTUZ in Harare for resisting arrests. The three appeared in a Harare magistrate court and were remanded out of custody although one of the members sustained serious injuries due to beatings inside the police cells. As a result, Zimbabweans are getting worried because more civil servants are threatening to demonstrate due to unpaid salaries and bonuses in December 2015. A case government requires 100 million US dollars every month for salaries, chewing up nearly 80% of the country's resources. Secretary General of the RTUZ Robson Chere explained just before the arrest on Monday. There was no clear charges as of today about why were they accused. But after the lawyer came, that's when they tried to build cases that they were resisting arrest. But the nature of the arrest, why they were being arrested, it wasn't clear. So they had to come up with charges for resisting arrest. And now they're saying partly they assaulted the police when they were about to be arrested for no charge. When they were in the custody, even on the way to the custody, they were beaten. They have sustained several injuries in the cartoon. They were stripped naked, mystified in corner, stripped naked the whole night and the whole day to such an extent that when the lawyer who is representing them from the Zimbabwe Lawyers for Human Rights, when he arrived, he was still naked and mystified in corner again, was stripped in mud. They were saying they want to baptize him so that he can reform. Mystified in corner was given access to go to the hospital after the lawyer insisted. And I think maybe the police officers were now afraid that he can die in their hands. If the evidence from the doctor shows that he sustained a fractured limb. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchema.
Several political parties in South Africa's parliament say they are worried about the stalemate in the negotiations between Pretoria and the U.S. over the African Growth and Opportunity Act, known as AGOA. Trade and Industry Minister Rob Davies says government has made some significant progress on the negotiations despite the failure to meet the deadlines. Some political parties are hopeful that a win-win solution will be achieved soon, while others are critical of what they see as South Africa's poor negotiating skills. Our reporter in Parliament, Abongwe Kobokane, compiled this report. Reports have indicated that the U.S. is pushing ahead with suspending South Africa from AGOA after the country missed its December deadline to resolve the dispute on trade levies. U.S. President Barack Obama is expected to make an announcement soon about his government's decision. The DA says South Africa's integrity in the negotiations is questionable. DA spokesperson on trade and industry, Jordan Hill-Lewis. So the credibility in these negotiations is uh, in ruins. And we sincerely hope that they are right, that they can be close to an agreement this week. Frankly, at this point, they have promised us so many times that we can only believe them when we see it. And if we we don't get an agreement and our agricultural products are excluded uh, from the USA because of it, then the South African government and ultimately the president will have to EFF Chief Whip Floyd Chivambo described the demand by the U.S. government as a way of pulling South Africa into agreeing. We believe that uh, the, the U.S. strategy was saying that you take our product or want to cut it off from Agoa is a bullying tactic. It's a trade bullying tactic. Not genuine. It's not about promoting the development of the food production sector in South Africa. The ACDP and FF Plus are very much concerned about the implications such as job losses in the agricultural sector if these negotiations do not succeed. And South Africa is suspended from AGOA. ACDP MP Steve Swartz and FF Plus spokesperson Peter Mulder. No, well, from our side, it is clearly, if it relates to outstanding issues, particularly relating to the poultry industry, those are issues that needed to be negotiated. And so I do not believe that in the context of the agreement that has been signed and needs to be implemented, that it should be seen as bullying tactics. Well, firstly, the Freedom Front Plus says that if South Africa is dropped from the Ahua benefits by the United States of America, that will be very negative and bad for South Africa. Uh, And specifically, when it comes to our export products, Uh, and other benefits, and that uh, is going to create more uh, people with our jobs. Uh, So that is the one problem. UDM MP Ngabayom Zungwangwa agrees that it is not far from the truth to think that the U.S. is using some sort of pulling tactic. Well, um, I think I've said it that uh, uh, to a certain extent one cannot help but walk away with the feeling that the U.S. is actually pulling South Africa into submission is pulling South Africa to get what it wants. I think it's, it's become very typical of the United States of America to use those tactics when it does not get its way on any matter. Uh, so we're not surprised. But we're hoping that uh, the minister and the department will do everything in their power to make sure that we're not affected in terms of trade uh, and trade volumes and that we're not suspended from, from Agoa. ANC MP and chairperson of the Portfolio Committee on Trade and Industry, Johan Fabs, could not be reached. That report by our 
Abongwe Kobokana in Parliament. It's 8.27 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Social media experts in South Africa say a former Guazul Natal estate agent, Penny Sparrow, who labeled black beachgoers as monkeys on Facebook, has done irre- irreparable damage to a professional reputation and her career prospects. Social media lawyer Emma Sadler says Sparrow has destroyed her reputation and severely damaged that of her former employer, Jarvis Properties. The company said earlier it was exploring what action to take against Sparrow. The racist Facebook post has been widely slammed on social media. Ntlantlakele reports. Former Wazul Natal estate agent Penny Sparrow who called black Africans on tap and speeches monkeys on her Facebook page, has since gone to ground. She went on to label SAPC's Metro FM a black people's radio. During an interview, Sparrow posted on her Facebook page that she would now address the blacks of South Africa as monkeys, as I see the cute little wild monkeys do the same, pick, drop and litter. She said, blacks have no education whatsoever, so to allow them loose, is inviting huge debts and troubles and discomforts to others. In 2014, Sparrow described South Africa as a ruined country on her Facebook page. Calls to her cell phone went to voicemail. Hello, you've reached me, Penny, but I'm not here around at the moment. Leave a short message in your number and here it is, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Bye. This mailbox is full and cannot accept any more messages at this time. Goodbye. Yawit's properties, Brent Donlow, Sparrow's former employer, says she was a grounded and loving person who would not hurt a fly when she worked for them. He, however, made it clear that they do not share her sentiments. We did not, did not condone what she has done at all. During her employment here, she seemed like a very nice person. She never made any racial slurs at all while she was in her employment. But it is not our view. The early then was Natal, Swagele Mwango says, they have suspended her membership and laid charges against Penisperro. I can confirm that indeed the case has been opened against the member who really wrote something that is very disgusting and we believe a racist comments has been made uh, publicly. And I can confirm that yes, uh, Penny E, the TA member, uh, I have uh, ordered a suspension of her membership. The ANC has also strongly condemned Sparrow's Facebook remarks. ANC spokesperson Zizugotwa says such remarks must be condemned by all South Africans who believe in an inclusive society. Most white South Africans have embraced a democratic and a new dispensation. And we shouldn't allow people like Penny and others to reverse the gains we have made to build non-racialism and social cohesion. That's why we say leaders of political parties, they must not use platforms to build a racist South Africa and praise the past because it reminds us and reverse the gains we have made. Sparrow has been condemned by most black and white South Africans for her racist comments. I'm Tlantangwele in Teppen. It's 8.31 and our headlines up next with Amanda Machaka.
Thanks, Lulu. Good morning. A Malawian politician demands that homosexuals be killed after the country's justice minister put a temporary prohibition on anti-homosexual laws. The South African Human Rights Commission encourages those who feel aggrieved by the alleged racist comments attributed to some people on social media to lodge a formal complaint with them. And the United Nations Security Council strongly condemns the attack by Iranian protesters on the Saudi embassy in Tehran. Details at the top of the hour. Thank you, Amanda. It's an anxious wait for thousands of South African matriculants ahead of the release of their results later today. Basic Education Minister Angie Mutsecha will officially announce the 2015 matric results in Midrand, north of Johannesburg, at 6 p.m. this evening. The Department of Basic Education has confirmed that the 2015 pass rate has dropped compared to the previous year. A record number of over 800,000 grade 12 learners sat for the 2015 final year exams, 120,000 more than the previous year. Wisani Makubele has more. Despite a paper leak in the Vember district in Limpopo, Quality Assurance Body Umalusi is satisfied with how the exams were conducted as well as how the Department of Basic Education dealt with the matter. Although the results of those implicated in the paper leak will be withheld, the rest of the matriculants are eagerly awaiting the announcement of the results. Department spokesperson Elijah Mshanga says it's all set for this evening. Everything that we needed to do has been done. The speech is ready. Uh, the minister is just looking at it uh, to make any final changes that you might want to make. The venue is ready. We've been to the venue. We checked everything. And uh, we've invited people. The top achievers have arrived from provinces that uh, have produced top achievers for 2015. And we ourselves are ready. In fact, we're waiting to tell the nation what happened in 2015 as far as grade 12 is concerned. Although the actual figures will only be revealed later today, the department has confirmed that this year's metric pass rate has dropped from last year's 75.8%. Mshanga, however, says this does not mean a decrease in the actual number of those who passed. He says this is because there were more learners than ever before who sat for the grade 12 exams in 2015. Generally, when the numbers are very high, a drop usually happens. But we urge South Africans and all those people who are going to be analyzing the results to look at the numbers, because the actual numbers tell a different story, which is opposed to what the percentage reporting is telling us. So if we were to look at the number of entrants to the metric uh, exams, as well as the passes that we have registered this year, are actually higher than those registered years before. Despite this explanation, the Congress of South African Students, COSAS, has expressed disappointment over the drop in the pass rate. COSAS President Zama Kanyase says this is a sign that fundamental problems in the education sector have not been dealt with. We are already having it in mind that um, it is not going to be a good year again. And we are quite disappointed because last year uh, the results that we received had, had also dropped from the ones of the previous year, and obviously the Department of Education had committed that uh, there are going to be amends made to ensure that uh, this year we receive better results. 
but uh, it has worsened. Even though some of these learners are confident of a pass, they are still anxious to find out exactly how they performed. I'm a bit anxious, I guess, like all the other matriculants, but excited for next year and what I'll be able to do with my metric results. I am a bit curious and nervous at the same time. Since I don't know how I perform, definitely I've passed. I'm so happy because I know I've done well. <laughs> I've worked hard all this year. I feel fairly confident. I know that I put in the hard work and even though I've had a number of challenges this year, that my results will be good. I'm anxiously waiting for my metric results. It's quite nerve-wracking. Operations Director at the South African Depression and Anxiety Group, Casey Chambers, says it's understandable that some learners are already overwhelmed by the thought of the results being released. She says it could be scary as the results play a big role in determining someone's future. It's really important that all students and their parents know that those results that are being released are only but marked on a piece of paper. There are so many different options of help available and support, whether it be applying for remarks, supplementary exams, bridging courses. So if you or your parent or a friend is feeling overwhelmed, pick up the phone and speak to a counsellor at SADAG on 0800 41 42 43. That helpline number again, 0800-414243. Basic Education Minister Njimutsheha will make the official announcement of the results at 6 p.m. this evening in Midrand, north of Johannesburg. I'm Wisani Makubele in Johannesburg. More than 40,000 Lesotho citizens who have been given amnesty for overstaying and living in South Africa illegally are expected to return after the festive season. Many have now been issued with birth certificates and passports that will allow them to obtain the Lesotho Special Permit in South Africa. Traffic at the borders has peaked as thousands return to work. Ntakwanangatane has more. The borders between Lesotho and South Africa have reached peak traffic, but immigration and customs officials say they are prepared. Sepiso Masasani is the head of immigration at the border between the Lesotho capital, Maseru, and the Free State. Oh, this year we have worked so wonderfully well because uh, we have prepared very well. We planned together with our South African counterparts how we are going to deal with the situation. Many Lesotho citizens cross the borders into South Africa to work as domestic workers on the farms and in the mines. Those who fail to get jobs end up starting small businesses in various cities. To avoid the cost of going home every month to renew their 30-day permits, they would overstay. South Africa has now decided to give them special permits of four years, an amnesty to go home and register there first before they qualify for the permit. More than 40,000 were given amnesty under the Lesotho Special Dispensation. Masasani. Okay, those who still have uh, valid passports, we expect them to bring police clearance from Lesotho. To have a Lesotho ID, that means they will be appearing in Lesotho National Population Register. And then they should have uh, the letter of an employer. That one will come from South Africa. Yes, so that they'll be able to apply for the permit. This one which which will be lasting for four years, starting from the 1st of February this year. During the holidays, Lesotho Home Affairs registered them and now they are going back to be regularized in South Africa. She says there are no jobs in Lesotho and they are forced to go to South Africa to find work.
She says that children want to go to school, but they cannot afford while they work in Lesotho. She says she's very happy about the special permit and now they won't be forced to pay bribes to the police. She says now they can stop running away from the police who always chase them when they come back after overstaying in South Africa. He says he was on holiday in Lesotho and he had a wonderful time. He says he encourages other people to visit Lesotho. The stringent conditions of traveling with children to curb human trafficking are now a major issue of concern. Some people attempting to travel with minors without proper documents connive with runners at the borders to cross illegally. Traffic is expected to remain high for the rest of the week. I'm Takwanangatani in Maseru, Lesotho. More and more people are using their wealth to acquire residency or citizenship in countries that are considered more desirable. As according to two experts from the International Monetary Fund who have written about the trend in which people buy properties or make investments that allow them to gain legal status in more developed countries. UN Radio's Bruce Edwards spoke to Judith Gold and Ahmed El Ashram from the IMF about the phenomenon. Large international law firms advise wealthy clients on their asset management, and in that context, they also advise them on uh, how they can acquire different passports for their families and for themselves, for estate planning and for other reasons. And uh, so so that's the market itself, and uh, this just started to really balloon since the financial crisis, in part because there was a very rapid increase in wealth in emerging markets, so the clientele was there. But we also think the service providers saw this opportunity and started to market the product, first by advising governments how they can make their uh, laws more friendly towards this type of investor, and then marketing, bringing the clients to the countries to show that this is doable. Uh, And Ahmed, Do you think uh, the ability to move from country to country becomes so difficult uh, with all the extra security in in recent years uh, that there are people now willing to invest some of their money in countries that will in return give them uh, greater freedom of movement? Since 9-11, a lot of things have changed and there have been more travel restrictions and more scrutiny as well. And nationals from countries that passport that they're holding does not uh, enjoy a lot of global mobility, uh, do take the opportunity to invest in countries with the added incentive of being naturalized as citizens, and that gives them higher mobility to travel. Of course, high net worth individuals are interested in that kind of thing. Businessmen would like to fly to Europe without the hassle of going through visa processes. I would kind of describe it in two ways. There's a growth of a new middle class in emerging markets. These are very well-educated people with lots of assets, but when it comes to travel, they are treated like third-class citizens. Uh, And with the growth of wealth of these individuals, they're saying, I don't have to be treated this way. (laughs) I can for a relatively 
modest investment, I'll explain why modest in a second, I can actually acquire either a resident visa that will allow me access to all the Schengen countries or a Caribbean passport that would also allow me access to all the European countries plus 120-odd countries without any hassle. So, so what kind of investment are we talking about? Different programs have different kind of thresholds for investment and different type of investments as well. So I will use Portugal as an example where the, the scheme in Portugal is you have to buy a property that has a value of about half a million euros. And with that, you get a residence visa in Portugal uh, where you have to reside seven days a year. The minimum residency requirement. And, and many of these programs have extremely minimal residency requirements. The Caribbean programs are different. These are citizenship programs where you get a passport. The Caribbean countries, for the most part, do not have any residency requirement. The cost varies. The lowest is in Dominica, and you need to make an investment of 100,000 U.S. dollars to the government. And then it, it increases in St. Kitts. It's, uh, the minimum investment is 250000 to their development fund and up to 400000 for investment in real estate. The investment in real estate is attractive because you have the possibility to resell that within five years, but you still retain your citizenship and your passport. So the revenues generated by these programs, uh, are they significant enough to make a difference in a country's economy? you know, the economic growth of a country? For small states, we believe they do. The very stark example is St. Kitts and Nevis, where we've seen inflows exceeding 25% of GDP. And when, when I say that, I'm, I'm talking about inflows both as contributions to the government and investments in real estate. So that's a, a very sizable figure. So does it translate into jobs? Yes. And Cyprus as well, by the way. The inflows are, are quite of significant magnitude and make a real difference in the construction and real estate and tourism sector, because a lot of these are end up being properties that are then for rent, like condominium rentals and timeshares and such. That was Judith Gold and Ahmed El Ashram from the International Monetary Fund speaking to Bruce Edwards. It's 8.45 and our economics update up next with Tabisa Lehobo. Thanks, Valungile. The White House is poised to announce the suspension of South Africa's duty-free access to the U.S. market for its agricultural products. This will hit the South African agricultural sector hard, affecting the exports of citrus, nuts, canned fruit, wine and avocados, which are likely to lose their tariff-free access to the U.S. market. South Africa believes it has taken a principled stand on phytosanitary issues prioritizing the health of its citizens. Nigerian President Mohamedou Buhari, who was elected on a pledge to tackle corruption, is holding talks with the International Monetary Fund. This as the country seeks to spend its way out of an economic crisis fueled by a plunging oil prices. The IMF's managing director, Christine Lagarde, are meeting Buhari and his finance minister, Kemi Adosan, on Tuesday. 
as the meeting suggests an acknowledgement of Buhari's efforts to revive Africa's largest economy. Nigeria relies on crude exports for more than half of its state revenues. Beans prices in Swaziland have increased by over 212% within a period of only about two years. The National Agricultural Marketing Board says by 2017 there might be no beans in the local market due to decreased production in South Africa. The grain production has been declining for the past years in South Africa and has resulted in the neighboring countries failing to meet their internal demand. Botswana's Ministry of Trade and Industry says it has established that some businesses, especially chain stores, are displaying their merchandise in other currencies, especially the South African rand instead of the pula. A press release from the ministry explains that in some cases, consumers are made to pay in pula without taking the exchange rate differential into consideration. The ministry says this is unfair trade practice whereby the pula rand exchange rate differential, or rather, yes, differential, is not passed on to the consumer. Saving money is always among New Year's resolutions, whether it eventually does happen or not. But with the tough economic times predicted for 2016, consumers are urged to cut back on spending their money on luxuries, as they will likely have uh, little or no spare change in their pockets. Nelly Somavundla looks at Stockfells as an alternative method to save your money. Isaac Machiho, economist at NetBank, says... This is a time for consumers to focus on spending their money on necessities as food prices are likely to rise. My big concern is that in 2016 we are likely to see higher food prices because of the lower yield that we are seeing in the agricultural sector and that is a result of uh, dry weather conditions. Zinigim Kuno is a member of two types of money-saving stockfills. You save like, well, how I've been saving. Then I get to to be in a position of buying stuff that I need maybe for the house or for myself without having to enter into the higher purchase deals where there'll be interest and admin fees. The South African rand is trading at 15.54 US dollars, 11.13 Botswana Pula and 10.97 Zambian Kocha. 0.67 British pound, 0.92 euro, gold $1076, platinum $886 an ounce, brand crude oil $37.47 a barrel. We in South Africa. Thank you, Tabiso. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In our sports update this hour, we're kicking off with football news. Nigeria's Chan Foes, Guinea, have named a final squad for the tournament dominated by players from the country's two leading clubs, Oroya AC and AS Kalum. Guinea's locally based national team coach, Kanfori Lape Bangura, looked to Kalum and Oroya for the core of his squad, with the two corner Cree giants providing 17 players to the local Sealy. 
Guinea will take on Nigeria in the final Group C game on the 26th of January. They begin their Chan campaign against Tunisia in Kigali on the 18th of January and will also face Niger. Meanwhile, South Africa's ABSA Premiership log leaders and Telcom knockout champions Mamelodi Sundowns have returned to training for the second half of the season. And head coach Pizzo Musimani says they have not given up on convincing Bongani Zumu to stay with the team. Lowly placed Portuguese side Vitoria de Gumarez tried hard in August last year to buy Zungu from Sundowns for 358,000 US dollars in vain. Musimane has not convinced that this would be the right club for the 23-year-old. If you can check the team that Zungu wants to go to, they can be relegated. Eh? Which team? Uh, yeah, they can be relegated. I'm not saying they are going to be relegated. I said they can be. Last year they had a decent run. They finished number five. But it's a different story this year. Well, I don't want to say where he must go because uh, the agent is there for him. But uh, I said to him, and I will still say, he needs one more year. The thing is, when you say he needs one more season, it doesn't look, doesn't sound nice outside. Like, ah, the coach wants to, to keep the boy here, mustn't go to Europe. And I told, I told Zoom, I said, I played in Europe. Why should I want you to go to Europe? So you must go to Europe. Let's go play. In, in cricket news, Proteas clawed their way back into the game at Newlands Cape Cricket Stadium in Cape Town on Monday, led from the front by Captain Hashim Amla and Deputy A.B. De Villiers in their resilience, knocked in the reply to England's massive first innings, total of 629. Amla, 157 not out, and De Villiers' patience, 88, led the Proteas to 353 uh, for three lost wickets on day three, Still 276 runs behind at the close of playing. Yeah, look, obviously we were behind the eight ball on day one. England played extremely well and it uh, needed a, a real resilient performance from us to try and get back in the game and, and that's what we did today. We possibly didn't score as quick as England did, obviously. For us, it was really just to get back in the test match and that's all we could do. So to lose one wicket in the day is, is an extremely good effort from the batting unit. Real proud of Hash to get a big score like he did today. Um, we as a team are, are extremely proud of him. Top of the batsmen, Fav C will resume on Tuesday today on 51 with Amla hoping to bet the entire day to get close to England's score and get valuable time out on the crease. And then as, a, as, as we all do as senior players, we like to score and contribute as much as we can and to put in big performances for the team. You know, you don't want to be three or four senior players in the team that we need to lead from the front. Um, and I'm very glad that has put a lot of hard work into the nets. To get a big score like he did today with AB was a huge step in the right direction. I and mean, for me personally, it was just nice to spend some time in the middle again and get your confidence back. But it's really important for me to try and also put a big score on the board. When you're looking for runs, 50s and 40s doesn't make a big difference you need to make sure you cash in big that's going to be my goal tomorrow and finally Novak Djokovic took just 51 minutes to win his first game of 2016 easily beating Dustin Brown 6-2 and 6-2 in the opening game of the Qatar Open on Monday the world number one was rarely troubled by the German and barely raised a sweat in cruising into the second round with an ominous display for his rival looking for an early season weaknesses from Djokovic after his dominant 2015 Djokovic says before the tournament started that he is in Doha to win and not merely play some warm-up matches before the defense of his Australian Open crown later this month. And that's your Sport News this hour.
Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. And that wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Tracy Bungard, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Salif Keita with the song title Tekere.
Good morning and welcome.